Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch, this is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith, Features Editor at the Dispatch, and this year marks the 125th anniversary of the birth of Columbus native son, James Thurber, an extraordinary writer and cartoonist, and the most popular humorist of his time. He wrote such pieces as The Secret Life of Walter Mitty and The Male Animal, and he created cartoons for The New Yorker magazine. Thurber, who was born in 1894 and died in 1961 at the age of 67, lived his early years in Columbus, including at the house on Jefferson Avenue that is now the literary center, the Thurber House. In celebration of this artist, the Columbus Museum of Art will present more than 100 cartoons and drawings by Thurber in the exhibit A Mile and a Half of Lines, The Art of James Thurber, the largest and most comprehensive exhibit of his art. It will run from August 24th to March 15th. Michael J. Rosen, the founding literary director of Thurber House, curated the museum exhibit and wrote and edited the accompanying book, as well as a new collection of Thurber's complete fables. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. We're really glad to have you here with us. Thanks so much. We're here with my colleague, Nancy Gilson. Nancy, why don't you get us started? Okay. Michael, why don't you tell us about the title of both the book and the exhibit, A Mile and a Half of Lines? James Thurber considered himself a writer who, between his very polished and scintillating prose, relaxed by drawing. And he once quipped that if you stretched out all the lines of everything I've drawn, it would reach a mile and a half. So that felt like just the right chance to re-expose readers and viewers to the genius of his particular line, both in prose and on the occasion of the museum in the galleries. So tell us, what all is in the exhibit? Where the works come from? How many works are there in the exhibit? When Thurber published his 30-some books, he illustrated some, others illustrated some, and of course he helped define the nature of The New Yorker, first publishing cartoons there. And so this show features everything he did during the, roughly speaking, 17 years that he had the visual ability to create on the page. He had a childhood bow and arrow accident that lost the sight of one eye, and progressively over his young and then his adulthood, he lost all of his sight, so the last two decades were spent in blindness. Hence, the drawings stopped. So it's rare, and I think the Columbus Museum is really excited because nothing is like Thurber's work in the museum. They've never done an exhibit of someone who was not a trained artist, who worked for such a short period of time, who never thought of himself as artist, and literally wrote on scraps of paper, shirt, cardboard, and at the start anyway, just gave them away, put them in the trash. And it was E.B. White of Charlotte's Web fame, who shared his office, who first inked the drawings, sent them in to be rejected, by the uh, by, the New Yorker, but persisted and encouraged. So to answer your question, the museum show will 
feature early drawings, cartoons, work he did for advertising. He was so popular in the 30s and 40s that he propelled a number of advertising campaigns with his drawings, everything from Bugaboo Insecticide huh. to the French Line Cruises, as well as illustrations for other people's books. And kind of a curiosity, his mind had such a hum to it. And I think the equivalent happened in his hand. He was always drawing. You know, whether sitting at the table or at the bar or at friends' houses, he would be drawing. So I show some of those, and he would take someone's book and just start doing extra illustrations in a copy of Hemingway's book or another colleague's. But he definitely did not consider himself an artist, did he? No, he poo-pooed the idea. He sort of, I mean, there's a story about Matisse, and it may be apocryphal, but it's told in many versions and biographies where Matisse was once asked when he came to America what artists he wanted to meet or was interested in, and he said, to bay. And everyone's like, to bay. T-O-O-B-E-Y. <laughs> and eventually says, Monsieur Toubet. And so Thurber was the... Uh, now, there is something in the line quality that Matisse... It could be argued, art historians have argued, that yes, he has the free expressive line. And it's key to point out that cartoons didn't go around looking like Thurber's until Thurber came along. They were done by artists. They were done by trained draftsmen. And even the cartoon's behavior, here's a beautiful piece of art, nothing particularly funny about it. And then you would read a caption that would often be like, someone would say something, someone would say something else, and then there would be a repost or a little punch. Thurber had a one-line cartoon, and Thurber made a cartoon drawn of one, two, ten lines, none of them sketched in, all of them created before the idea even came to him. That's liberated Look at the pages of The New Yorker. Look at the art galleries now. We're used to seeing artists that aren't rendering, aren't realistic. We should probably back up a little bit and talk about Thurber and Columbus. Like, he did come from here, and he spent a few years here. Tell us a little bit about his Columbus years and what impact they had on him. Well, he was a native son here in Columbus, born in 1894. His father worked as a minor official in government, so they moved a lot around the city. The now-preserved... Thurber House is in the residence where he lived during his college years. He went to OSU, he went to East High School, he went to Sullivan Avenue School. He claimed as his two great childhood influences, one very positive, his mother, who was a character as we say now. She often wore disguises and used different voices and played pranks. And the other, the less fortunate one I mentioned, taking an arrow in the mm -hmm. eye during a William Tell game with his brother. Mm. Wow. And as such, his high school years were a little more introspective. Not that he didn't become president of the class or have a certain popularity, but as many writers would say, there's something that makes them an outsider, a better observer. He went to OSU. Every one of his buddies was enlisting or in the ROTC. Because of his vision, he wasn't able mm -hmm. to, a source of frustration. Looking through the microscope during botany class, you know, another impossibility. So he left OSU without a degree, though during OSU, he began editing the humor magazine, writing plays for the drama group. And he met Elliot Nugent, much more of a bon vivant, a theater kind of person, with whom he later created the play The Male Animal, which is set at a university not named like Ohio State. And then his family continued to live here. He would visit frequently. He wrote upwards of a thousand letters a year on the typewriter, long letters, and many of them were to his family. And he came back to visit. But more to your point, 
even as he lived in Connecticut, New York, or Bermuda, it was, as he said, the clocks of Columbus that chime in his dreams. And as a member of that lost generation, both wars, the Great Depression, Prohibition, the era of mobsters, a very hectic and depressing and jumpy time, all the machine age changes, Mm -hmm. the speed of life dramatically changing. And for someone who was blind and getting more blind, he considered himself jumpy his generation, a jumpy generation. And so returning to Columbus in his stories, which he did for the best-selling autobiography, My Life in Hard Times, coming back again in the 50s to the Thurber album, Portraits of Family and Friends and Teachers here in Columbus, as well as the children's books, Mm -hmm. were not escapes, but ways that he could continue doing his good work in one corner of the fight. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the way that Columbus is reflected in some of his written works. Is it reflected in any of his art? Is there anything that we'll see at the museum, perhaps, that shows just a shade of Columbus? Surely the drawings from My Life in Hard Times, all set here, are, you know, boyhood, uh, riffs on boyhood incidents. So he would say, well, yes, they're true, but, you know, true as I remember it, true as makes interesting narration. So does that mean exaggeration? Sure. And each of those stories is illustrated. And so at the museum show, you will see how the electricity leaked from the sockets if the (laughs) wall switch wasn't turned on, at least according to his grandmother. You'll see the people fleeing the supposed flood, the great flood from downtown, and the woman who jumped up on the These Are My Jewels statue that sits on the on the State House lawn. So both of those drawings are featured, as well as a program that he illustrated for the OSU's Michigan versus Ohio State game, and a couple other examples that are from the male animal, which we could say are set here. Do you have a cartoon that you can kind of describe and tell us about that's sort of indicative of Thurber and his talent? One that's in the show that strikes me as answering the question that I think is on everyone's mind, is this work still funny? Is this work still relevant? Is this work which hasn't been seen in a museum this large ever and hasn't been popularized for some decades? He died in 1961. And it's a picture of a man and woman in their living room with a funky lamp and a picture. And a woman is coming through the door and she's got a gun. And the caption is, have you people got any 38 cartridges? (laughs) And everything about that seems hilarious and pathetic and relevant. You know, that the innocent ask of a neighbor, do you have any guns? And remember, Thurber, as a national pastime, folks were morbidly interested in the gangs and the mobs and the shootings of New York and Chicago and so forth in the 30s and 40s. So that drawing nearly 85 years later has a very sad frisson of relevance. Can you talk a little bit about your own background and what drew you to Thurber's work in the first place? I appreciate your asking, Ryan. You know, I'm a Columbus native son as well. I draw, illustrate, and write. So, you know, I share the desire to record and use my own home as part of the the language. Likewise, when I graduated with my writing degree, the Thurber House was a derelict building in need of restoration, preservation, actually, and some programs. And I luckily had a job first working as a designer and then as someone who could help lead the programming, what should we do here at this house? And the steering committee had some wonderful folks on board to say, well, we're thinking of a writer in residence. We're imagining a reading series. We'd like to have classes for children. 
And so over the next 20 years, as I worked there, I became more and more familiar, well, exhaustively so, in all of his work, as well as working with the estate for 40-some years now, and Ohio State University's rare books and manuscripts, where the vast holdings of Thurber's work reside now. And those are where a large part of the works in the exhibit are from, is that right? That's correct. Probably 75% are from that archive, which represents the donations of Thurber's late wife and Thurber's brother and some other people, as well as the Thurber family members themselves and a couple Columbus residents who have purchased works over the years. And I think you've also been in very close contact over the years with Rosemary Thurber, his daughter, as well as Sarah, his granddaughter. Can you talk about them and their impact? The Thurbers are a vital part of really anything that happens along with the Thurber's agent, you know, partly for permission and partly for having the momentum of their knowledge. So Rosemary, his only daughter, and Sarah, one of three grandchildren, are the managers, the executrixes, Trixies of the <laughs> estate now. And we've become, yes, you know, great friends. And it's a tremendous honor that they have allowed me to make suggestions to do six books to help pull together a new James Thurber website. And it's what I continue to imagine enriching the next decades of my life. And Sarah, I should have said, designed Ohio State University Press, engaged her. She is a book designer to create A Mile and a Half of Lines, The Art of James Thurber. So we have a Thurber, and I think James would be very proud that his granddaughter has presented, and I should say, for the first time, artwork that looks like artwork, not like photocopies. In other words, you'd look at the New Yorker magazine, or you'd look at any of his books, and you would see a black and white drawing. You go to the museum and you see the paper, you see the editor's notes, you see erasing, you see foxing and rubber cement. Because as I say, he did not think of himself as an artist and so nothing is acid-free, archival, until it got into the hands of OSU and they've you know, preserved as they can. How did the show come to be? I mean, did you approach them? Did they need convincing? Was it their idea? The Thurber House director at the time, Jennifer Gregg, and Nanette Mesa Junes at the Columbus Museum were having a meeting, and it was on the occasion of anticipating that Thurber would be 125 years old this December 8th. So this year, they thought, why can't we get the city engaged in a celebration called the Year of Thurber? Let's look to other cultural organizations. Let's, let's really try to mount city pride for clearly the best-known artist, author, you know, from Ohio. And I'm often asked, you know, how do you rank Thurber? And is he greater than Twain? And wasn't there Robert Benchley and all of these other... I think if you look at Thurber's output, there's no one who did the range of work that he did. Autobiography and biography, five children's books, young adult work, short stories, and a range of humor that was unparalleled. Satires and parodies and fake journalism and pretend letters and we don't like to talk about fake journalism here. Yeah, there's a better word for that. <laughs> it's actually called sort of participatory journalism, where he'd pretend to know something and write as if he were the expert. We don't talk about that either, do we? <laughs> <laughs> and then you add all of that to, oh, and by the way, he changed the nature of the cartoon and was a visual artist. Who else do you point to? Do you think he gets proper credit for that? No, no. And the case in point or the argument of this book is that he needs credit. And in some ways, it's so simple. Let me give you this example. You look at any major change in style. Let's just say, here's Marcel Duchamp putting a urinal 
in the gallery, or here's mm-hmm. Jackson Pollock throwing paint on a canvas, or here's Mark Rothko that's just put color. And you're, you know, we're next to someone in the gallery looking at this piece, and the person whispers to their friend, "Oh my God, I could do that." And you know, I'm always ready to say, "Too late." <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> Too late. And that is the point. Thurber was the first to be first at this. And you look at this work, and the fact that he was visually impaired and wasn't a marketer and didn't pitch himself to galleries and was lost to the era in some ways because he did short pieces and not a major novel that we continue to read, I do think he has uh, lost the credit that he deserves. And his work, when you go to the museum, as I was saying earlier, I think it'll be shocking in some way because you will say, my kids could do that. And when he first started publishing in The New Yorker, he liked to tell the story that mothers, I suppose fathers as well, would send in their kids' drawings <laughs> with a note to Harold Ross, the publisher, saying, that man Thurber doesn't draw any better than my kids. Why don't you publish these drawings? And Harold Ross would put a pile of these on Thurber's desk every week. And he would have to write the same letter back to them, which was, yes, your child can draw as well as I do. It's just he or she hasn't been through as much. And really, that is what we say about art. It's not that someone else might not be able to do it, but somehow your experience as an outsider, as a curious observer, you've told people what they sense or know, but in a way that they didn't expect it. And I think this is a one-off with this exhibit, right? It will not be traveling. It will not be touring. As much as I would love it to have wings, the art being fragile and literally friable, the paper, Uh it needs to go back to sleep at the university in the climate-controlled conditions. Now, this isn't your only contribution to remembering the 125th birthday of Thurber this year. You also just recently published a book of a collection of his fables. Can you talk a little bit about that? And in particular, maybe some of the new ones that hadn't been published before. Yes, Thurber did two books of fables, both of them responding to the times, 1940, 1956, a lot happening and humor always roosts and what makes us uncomfortable, and what is unspeakable, and what we falter to explain. And so his fables are timeless, partly because the nature of fables is not to be set in a particular time. Let's use animals, let's use a more generic and smaller circumstance to, whether you want to say it's political action, or it's just forthright speaking, or a challenging way of of looking at the world. There were 85 fables, 10 of which he submitted to The New Yorker or he did publish but never put in a book. Those are longer and so they weren't matching as it were. And by that time, by the time of his second book, he was no longer able to illustrate. So we were able to look at all of the unpublished drawings and find new material to publish alongside those fables. And I commissioned very renowned uh, contemporary illustrators who would say Thurber is a profound influence. So that's Seymour Quast, that's R.O. Bleckman, Mark Ulrichson, Victoria Chess, people who have done uh, you know a great deal of work, both in editorial and in some in children's book illustrations. So I think the fables in particular are, whether for younger readers, Readers, not little kids, or adults now, vitally relevant. On a completely unrelated note, aside from Thurber, I have to say that I was introduced to some of your work personally this past week when we were on vacation as a family, and my mother-in-law gave your Elijah's Angel to my 
nine-year-old Elijah, which we enjoyed oh, very nice. much. Yeah. So it was nice to uh, to make that connection, get a chance to, to meet you so soon. I've read that some of your work that you have given some of the profits from those to organizations. Can you talk about that? And, and will that be the case for either of these books that you've got out now on Thurber? Oh, I appreciate your saying that. And Nancy and I have known each other since that. One of my very first picture books and talk about a Columbus story. It reflects my friendship with Elijah Pierce, the woodcarver and lay minister, my friendship with Amina Robinson. And with that book, I brought her, mm, not kicking and screaming, but, you know, into the whole new world of publishing. So that was her first book as well. And the chance to write the story about Hanukkah and Christmas set in our city is, is something that still pleases me to no end. Over the years, many of the other picture books and anthologies that I did for adults had royalties delegated to Share Our Strength, whose campaign, No Kid Hungry, is continuing to ensure that kids everywhere in America, whether it's through a school breakfast program, a summer nutrition program, or any number of other political and direct service actions, are being fed. And then a group that I just started with the help of the Jefferson Center here in Columbus called the Company of Animals Fund, where the authors and illustrators, hundreds of them, and writers agreed that, yes, I'll create a work for you, and we'll take the profits that these books make and go ahead and we gave $375,000 to 100 humane groups over a period of a decade, which, again, makes me very proud to know. You and Thurber are both big dog lovers. Yeah, there's that. There is that. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate you joining us on the show today, Michael. And, you know, we're looking forward to sharing all of these many stories and the art of James Thurber with the greater Columbus community and hope that they come to see him the way that you've seen him. That would be great. And the show's up for six months, so there's plenty of time to get your fill. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.